Welcome to Fruitful and Multiplying, a podcast from the Jewish Fertility Foundation. I'm your host, Ilana Frank. The first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. But what if, due to infertility, that path isn't so straightforward? This is a podcast about the fertility path less traveled. From the inspiring and the inspired, and the cutting-edge technology and science that continues to evolve to make it all possible. All right, here we go. I am super excited to introduce you all today to Wendy Kramer, the co-founder and director of the Donor Sibling Registry. Even just a glance at Wendy's resume will tell you that she is an incredibly accomplished, not to mention busy, mom boss girl boss. So we're honored today to welcome her onto our podcast. Wendy's other achievements include publishing research on donor family members, contributing chapters on donor conception, and writing and co-writing four books, including her most recent book, Counseling Donor Family Members, A Guide for Mental Health Professionals. She's even been on the other side of writing as she is a peer reviewer for multiple journals. Going from the page to the big screen, Wendy was an associate producer on the Emmy-nominated show Sperm Donor and the docuseries Generation Cryo. More personally, in 1990, Wendy gave birth to her son Ryan, whom she raised as a single parent. The two founded the Donor Sibling Registry in 2000 to help donor-conceived people like Ryan make consensual contact with half-siblings and donors. Hi, Wendy. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I first learned about you um, several years ago when we were actually doing a webinar with donor conceived people with actually a group of, uh, I think it was like four children who found out in various ways that they were donor conceived. And of course your name came up and your registry came up and really we're, we're just so excited you're here and let, let's just get to it. So let's start with what um, eventually led you to the creation of the Donor Sibling Registry, uh, your, your own fertility journey. We'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. So my story, this part of my life story begins in 1989. I had been married for a while and my ex-husband was experiencing infertility issues. Uh, Basically, the doctor told me, you will never have children together. And I thought, "Mm, come hell or high water, I will have a child. And Uh, Immediately, my ex-husband went in for some testing. We found out he was azospermatic, no no viable sperm at all. Uh, Within six weeks of that, I was at a doctor's office being inseminated by an unknown man. And nine months after that, in May of 1990, I had my son, Ryan. So we, and about a year after I had Ryan, me and my ex-husband split up. So it was from that point that I started raising Ryan as an only parent. And he became a very inquisitive, curious kind of a child. When he was two years old, he came home from preschool after seeing moms and dads and said, so did my dad die or what? And I went, oh my God, we're having this conversation now. Uh, No one told me about this, you know. 
okay. And we had the two-year-old conversation about the sperm and the egg, and I wanted to have a baby. And it literally lasted about 40 seconds. And then he asked me a question about choo-choo trains, and that was the end of that. Um, but it was a very important conversation because it was the cornerstone conversation upon which we could build the story of how he came to be. And so let's see, fast forward a little bit. By the time he's six years old, he looked at me and said, I want to know who my biological father is. And at that point, again, I thought, oh, my God, what do I do? What have I done? Of course, he's curious. Um, but nobody, not the clinic, not the sperm bank, nobody properly counseled or educated me and my ex-husband. I didn't know what to do. There was only one book out at the time called Lethal Secrets by Annette Barron. I read that, um, you know, which of course she was a proponent of honesty and truth in families and a child's right to know. And then uh, basically we kind of trotted along and we had to wait for social media to be invented. And finally in the year 2000, Yahoo Groups became a thing. We started the donor sibling registry as a very small Yahoo group thinking, well, I have a curious kid, donor conceived kid. Maybe he's not the only one. Maybe there are other people out there. Maybe there are donors who are open to contact or other parents who want to connect. And But we had no idea. And so we started the Yahoo group. It was very slow going. And then in 2002, we started getting national media attention. And then it just blew up. People, I think before that time, didn't realize they had a right to be curious, a right to search for, and a right to find, connect, and define relationships with, within donor family members. So the donors, the parents, the donor conceived people, and even the donor's relatives, the donor's parents and kids. So um, that was in the early 2000s. And then since then, we've just been booming. It was one of those like, build it and they will come. There was a need. We filled a need. People want to connect with their own and their children's genetic relatives. Biology isn't the only way to have a family, but it, it does matter. And it matters to a lot of people, um, a lot of donor-conceived people. So currently, we have more than 80,000 members in 105 countries around the world. And we've helped almost 23,000 of them connect with one another. Wow. 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 All right. That's me wowing. Quick question. Um, and, wow. So um, confirming that your ex-husband was out of the picture, he was not raising your son. So it, was, it wasn't crazy that he came home and he was like, I don't have the male figure in my house. Let me ask some questions. Okay. So that makes sense. When you, before you had him, did you have any questions, concern, you thinking, did you just want a baby? Were you so focused on that? Or did you kind of explore, like what was going on in your mind, if you can recall, prior to I, having a donor conceived kid? Yeah. So throughout my twenties, I was never one of those people who like knew I was going to have a child and I was meant to be a mother, you know, in my earlier twenties, if you would have shown me a, a, you know, a baby and a puppy, I probably would have chosen the puppy, you know, it just was not in my, I don't know. It just wasn't one of those things that I had always known. 
something happened. My biological clock went off when I was in my late 20s and it was almost beyond logic. Uh, I didn't, you know, it was just something very foreign to me, this need, desire, and just this overwhelming knowing that I was meant to be a mother and give me the baby and give me the baby now. And it was so like sudden that it took me by surprise. It took everybody by surprise, but I just, um, I was like a lot of parents who are facing infertility. I was in the mindset of give me the baby, just give me the baby and I'll figure out everything else later. And given what I do and what I've been doing for 22 years, I often get asked the question, like, didn't you think that you would have a curious child or that your child would be, you know, want to know about their medical history, their ancestry, their close genetic relatives. And the honest truth is, nope, I didn't think about it. I was so singly focused on getting that baby, getting pregnant, getting that baby. Everything else was pushed to the peripheral. And, um, you know, and I think that's true for a lot of prospective parents and parents of babies. They're just so all consumed with becoming a parent and being a new parent that they don't, they're not adequately counseled and educated about all the rest of the stuff that will affect them and more importantly, their children for decades to come. So when parents are not properly counseled and educated before pregnancy, about the, the needs and the issues of donor-conceived kids, um, they're going to make decisions that affect their kids for decades that they might not be fully informed about. And so at the Donor Sibling Registry, our mission is to connect people, you know, make mutual consent contact, uh, support. We supply a support system for our 80,000 members, um, but also education. We conduct and publish a ton of research on all stakeholders, the parents, the donors, the donors' parents, donor-conceived people, um, er everyone in kind of the donor world. So we feel it's very, very important for people to be able to make informed choices and decisions about things that are going to affect their children for the rest of their lives. Okay. So... That's true. And I can completely relate to what you were saying about you just wanted the baby. I I shared a little bit before this about my story with my husband. And like, it was a five year period. Like it was so hard. All I want, I knew my family wasn't done. I had two kids already. I was going to do anything in my power to have this third kid. I talk about the fact that like, I was even in a place like I would have divorced him, like even to somehow get this kid. And I also like, I, I truly, I think my personality in general is like, let me build it or let me get it or let me have it. And then I'll deal with whatever happens and pivot. And I, that a thousand percent is what happened, you know, with my third child who's donor conceived. And I mean, my kid's young, he's three, right? So we're, we're navigating it now, navigating, understanding, you know, the relationships in our life that we have with his donor um, and donor family. So your, your son, Ryan, he's in his early thirties, right? He is 32. Yes. 32. So he, um, I mean that you have 30 years on me, really. How have you seen a difference in society, you know, having a donor conceived kid then 
versus, I guess, where we are today. And were you open about it when he was younger? Like, were you open about it? Okay. Tell us a little bit more about that. It was just my gut feeling that openness and honesty was the best way to go. To me, secrecy implies shame. And I didn't want my child to feel any sense of shame about him, any part of himself, including the way he was created. So from a very young age, I modeled the conversations for him. He watched me talking to family and friends and teachers and doctors and strangers about being very open and candid and confident about the way he was conceived. So that way I never had to worry when I left him at school and on the playground that he would be bullied about it because he was 100% confident about his own story. Uh, it wasn't a sore spot. And I think, um, you know, I think that's a very, very important thing for parents to know. Early disclosure, pre-verbal is best. They don't have to understand the nuts and the bolts. It's a conversation that grows and evolves over time. But you want your child to be confident about their own story, about everything about themselves, including about the way they were conceived. So Back when I conceived, I did not know anyone who had a child via a donor, or at least anyone who would talk about it. You know, back then, the whole thing was still shrouded in secrecy. And um, I think we met one person in the 1990s who had a donor-conceived child. And then after, obviously, after we started the donor sibling registry, that's when I got to connect with my people, you know, other people who had walked the same path I had walked and other people who are about to walk that path. And the donors, you know, hearing and being educated from the donors. And then as the donor conceived people got older, allowing myself to evolve and be educated by them. Um, has been extremely helpful. So not just for me, but for my whole community and for the public. That's why when media was media back when, it was very important for us. And we were so lucky to, you know, we were on Oprah twice and 60 Minutes and every news, and we were on everything. Because back then, that was the way to normalize this conversation for the general public. And I think that really helped in normalizing donor families and using a donor to where at least now, not all of the secrecy and shame has been lifted. There's still quite a bit that our community deals with, but a lot of it has been lifted. People understand that infertility is not something to be ashamed of. You know, it's a medical condition. We're not ashamed of having diabetes or another medical con condition. Why, why is this shame so attached with both male and female infertility? And all too often, that shame of that infertility is passed along to the child as the shame of donor conception. And I feel that's really unfair to children to take that shame and put it on their shoulders. So, okay. So you, know. you feel like you are clearly a woman on a mission, right? So 30 plus years ago, you were on a mission, you were on media, you are getting this started. Where's your son in all this? Like how, how is he reacting? Is he, is he with you or is he like, mom, like stop talking about this? Where is he? No, my son has been with me on the whole. I mean, he was with me on all the, you know, 60 minutes and the Oprah's and all the TV shows. So for, you know, a good 15 years, you know, while media was hot and different, um, he, every interview I did, he was with me. Um, 
He's done, since he's an adult, he's done a lot of media on his own. Um, but at some point, you know, <laughs> I decided to let him like explore his own passions and have his own life. So he's still there for me. He's on the board of the DSR. He listens to me all the time about what's going on with the DSR. Um, but he's not really involved day to day, which is fine. But if I needed him, he'd be here in a heartbeat. He is aligned with everything that I feel, everything that I say. Um, you know, he's walked through it with me. And also he's had the experience of he was the first donor conceived child to find his biological father through a DNA test in 2005 when he was 15. So he has that experience under his belt of being the first and maneuvering through the donor and donor grandparent relationship. He also at this point uh, currently had uh, his he has 23 half siblings, or as he says right now, it's 23 and me, or I call it 23 uh, and he. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that will only be for a short period because more are going to come. You know, they come every year now. Unfortunately, now they come from DNA testing and they all are coming because they did a DNA test and they had no idea they were donor conceived. So yep. that's why I have this passion for telling and telling early because I've seen the damage it can do to families. When kids find out as adults in this way, it can be really harmful and destructive and emotionally damaging to donor conceived people. You are way ahead of your times because that was not always the case um, 30 plus years ago. So kudos. I always have this fear because I am very public about, you know, what I went through and I talk a lot about it um, for my for my son. But I always have this fear that he's going to, you know, grow up and just going to be like, Mom, stop talking about it. It's not such a big deal. But we'll see. We'll see how he reacts. Well, um, it's not, I mean, for my son, it wasn't a big deal. Like people would ask him, what was it like when you found out you were donor conceived? And he would say, I don't know. What was it like when you found out you had blonde hair? So for him, like, it's so hard for him to understand families that aren't honest with their kids. He has the first two half siblings that we found of his. This was back in 2003. The mother watched our first Oprah, contacted us that night. She had two girls. One was three years younger than Ryan, uh, one six years younger than Ryan. She still has not told her daughters and they're adults now. And he is, he and now his other half siblings cannot fathom. They're very angry at that mother for keeping this lie. They're angry for when the truth comes out, because it will, um, you know, the pain that these kids are going to have to go through, especially because their mother has known for almost 20, 20 years now. So, but that shows how strong the fear is that parents have that they would withhold a secret like that knowing that now Ryan exists, all these other half siblings exist. There's contact made with the biological father. There's this whole lovely family out there that she has deliberately kept her children from. And it's just to a lot of people, it's un to me, it's unfathomable. And how um, it's just, in my personal opinion, it's very selfish. You're putting your own fears of your kids being angry at you over the rights of your child to know who and where they come from. 
Do you think that it is the it is important for a parent of a young child to be doing this research prior to having conversations with the child? Absolutely, because we know from mm -hmm. both anecdotal information, 22 years of it, 80,000 people and, you know, many research studies, kids who get to grow up knowing their half siblings are better off. You know, it's like would you keep your kids from their cousins until they're old enough to ask about them? No, you let your children grow up with their cousins because they're related and the relationships, you know, um, should be offered to them. We don't keep our kids from their grandparents. Um, we don't keep our kids from any of their genetic relatives. So why would we keep them from their half siblings and allow them to grow up knowing them? And have you seen in your experience working with so many families, have you seen any ethical dilemmas or the, uh, the other side of it uh, come up, like things that are not always perfectly happy? It's so funny. People always say, well, you always talk about the positive part. What are like, tell me some of the bad stories. And my answer is in any family, there are people you don't want to hang out with. And it's true in donor families. You know, look at your Thanksgiving table. Do you want to hang out and spend time with everybody there? No, it's the same with donor families. Some people you're more aligned with or the parents are more aligned or you have the same, you know, ethics or morals or backgrounds or ec economic backgrounds or religious backgrounds. So, but a lot of times you're very different. So, just because you're genetically related, is it like, is it a given you're going to have a great relationship? No, but that's not a reason to not allow your children to have access to their close genetic relatives. Um, I appreciate that. And, you know, people always say I I'm open about having an open relationship with um, we're still figuring out our own language of how to talk to each other, but with with my son's donor family and um people always ask me you know like how does it feel like isn't it weird and i my um the donor said to me you know one time she's like you know i feel like a proud grandma like keep on sending me the pictures she's like i i know he's a part of me but he's a thousand percent your kid so like you could never annoy me it's but people are like so like huh and I think that that was the nicest thing she ever said to me is like the grandma comp like or an, or an aunt or something like that. Like we know we're family, but he's a thousand percent your kid. Um, Absolutely. And I think some of that fear that parents have or that the donor is like going to take the place of the parent. And I hear this mostly from insecure parents. If you're secure about your parentage and your parenting, you're not threatened by a donor because you can you can look at the donor as you know a child is a very unique blend of nature and nurture so your son is who he is because of the parents that love him and raise him but also from the parents who gave him the dna so it's not like one takes away from the other it's not a takeaway it's just an adding to your son just as extra people who contributed to who he is. Um, and I think that's a wonderful and positive thing. I don't think it's weird. I don't think it's abnormal. I think it's like, okay, you just have more parents. Some parents are 
um, parent noun and some parents are parent verb. Some of the parents are doing parenting and some of the parents were just the biological parent. They contributed, you know, the DNA to make the child, but they're all, they all have a, a part in who your son is and who he becomes uh, as an adult. I like that. All right. So how does the actual registry work? So somebody wants to go, they sign up, what, run me through how it actually looks. Right. So, um, so first anybody can come to the donor sibling registry and they can click the search buttons up top. You can search by the clinic or facility and then look at all the postings under it. And, or you could do a search by donor number and then see if there's anyone else already posted for the donor number you used. And for most of the people, they do have a donor number for people born before the 1980s. We have people born from the 40s through the 80s or from small clinics around the world who don't have a, the luxury of a donor number, um, they can still connect, it's just a little bit harder. So when you first come to the DSR, you can do a search to look at the postings, see what a posting looks like, see what's visible. I work very hard to protect people's privacy. No one ever sees your personal information, your name, your email, nothing. Only your username, which, you know, is something like, you know, mom123 or something non-identifiable. And, you know, if you want to go for it, you uh, join the donor sibling registry. You just fill out a page with your personal details. Only I see that. I hand approve every single membership, every single posting. So you would fill out your personal details and then you would add your posting. And the posting is where you indicate the facility and the donor number. And that once you add that posting, bingo. If there's someone else who posted under that facility with that donor number, you're a match, your match gets an automatic email. You have a new match on the DSR. You can then upload photos. You have a medical page only viewable by you and the other people that used your donor. And this has saved lives. You cannot count on clinics or sperm banks to share and update medical information. Uh, our format allows you to do that with the other families. You can upload photos, share photos. Lots of um, donors, you know, they want to see what the kids look like. Lots of half siblings want to see what their half siblings look like. Um, that's the wonderful part about it is you get to see the things that you share with other people. Um, so you can send messages to other members, you know, hi, I just joined the site. I see that my son has a half sibling. We're so excited. We live in, you know, Atlanta. Here's my phone number. You know, some people do that. Some people take it a little bit more slowly. You know, they want to dip their feet in the water. They want to get to know the families. There's no right or wrong way to do it. You do it according. We, we set it up the way that we did so that the people who want to be a little bit more cautious and go a little slower, they can have the comfort of that. And the people that want to say, here's my phone number, let's meet at Starbucks tomorrow, they can do that too. Um, and then everybody has access to everything, all of our research, our published papers, my books, our media articles, um, all of our media videos are up there. You know, people can really use the donor sibling registry to educate themselves. Is there a cost? How, do, how does that work? Uh, so anybody can read anything on the DSR. It's all for free. You can add a, you can join the DSR and add your posting for free. 
Um, to become a member, it's either $99 for one year or $199 forever. You never pay again. And that allows you to contact other members, add um, photos, see the medical information. Um, well, see the photos and add photos see the medical information and add medical information and message other people. So we kind of put it in steps for people mm -hmm. who want to take, okay, I'm going to join the DSR. I'm going to put up my posting. I'm not ready to be in contact, or I don't see anyone else out there with my donor number, but they can get their posting up there. And then that way they're in a position to be found by others. So we kind of allow the step process. We're a charity. So the fees are what allows us to keep up and running. Nobody's getting rich. I work 80 hours a week. Um, you know, uh, it's just what is necessary. We have a very, very large and complicated website with many databases. And it's just what it takes to keep us up and running. Um, how have things changed with like Ancestry.com, DNA, DNA testing in relation to your uh, website? Yeah, so when my son was the first donor child to find his donor through DNA testing, that was 17 years ago, we know that was a, we knew at that time it was profound. We knew, oh my God, if Ryan can do it, anybody can do it. We knew it was a game changer. We've spent the last 17 years waving our arms to the industry, speaking, uh, you know, at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, at other reproductive conferences, saying basically DNA stands for donors, not anonymous. There is no such thing as anonymity. Um, even though every single vial of sperm is still sold as anonymous. It's just like ludicrous to me that they, they kind of ignore this fact that there is no such thing as anonymity. So we knew it was gonna be a game changer and we thought, well, it might impact the donor sibling registry um, because people will now have another way to find each other. And what's happened over the last 17 years is that we just get busier and busier. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. A lot of, we used to always send people to DNA testing. Now many people are coming to us from DNA testing, um, coming to us for the, the educational um, information and for support and that kind of a thing. And then also, you know, a lot of parents of very young children come to the DSR and they're not ready to DNA test their babies and young children. So uh, we just continue to grow at a breathtaking and very consistent rate. Um, if, if new parents are parents um, with younger children, or if donor-conceived people themselves are beginning the process, what would you recommend to them? If they're beginning the process The process of, of like, go with searching, yes. Yeah. To just so dive I would say based on our personalities to just dive in, right? And do well, it. Well, a lot or, of people will, yeah. yeah, a lot of people will be like us and just dive in and go for it. Um, but again, at the donor sibling registry, we, if you're curious, we allow you to dip your toes in the water and see what's there. Um, you know, I am always available for a phone call or an email. So I'd say if you're at all hesitant or nervous, call me, email me, you know, I'm always available. This is what I do. And I will help you feel more comfortable 
and be excited about the connections because they're not something to be afraid of. They're something that can be really enriching. Um, expanding family can be a really wonderful and positive and enriching experience for everybody. Wow. This is amazing. Okay. Any, any last guidance, words of advice? Um, I really, yeah, I do. Yeah. So even though the industry has been almost non-evolving for the last 30 years, and it's an extreme point of frustration for many of us, the one silver lining, and people should know this, people who are um, going to go the egg donation route, which I'm sure a lot of your people are, there are now more than three dozen egg agencies and egg clinics that realize the importance of parents and donors connecting right from pregnancy or birth. And they do this on the donor sibling registry. So all of these egg agencies and clinics write the DSR right into their parent and donor agreements. And this way, there's not a middleman standing between a donor and a parent saying, we know what's best for you and your family. And that is 18 years of you not knowing each other. We think that's utterly ridiculous. Parents and donors can be empowered to define their own relationships and share their own information. So seek out, go to the donor sibling registry, email me, ask me for one of these egg agencies or clinics that understand the importance of connecting donors and parents right from pregnancy and birth to allow the parents and donors to define these relationships and their own boundaries with each other um, and have access to each other. You know, I can't tell you when my son was little, if we would have had access to his donor, even just to say, like when my son started taking piano lessons when he was five, he wondered if his donor ever played piano. Hey, if we could have just gone to the donor sibling registry and said, hey, did you ever play piano? Maybe the donor would have written back, oh, no, I didn't play piano, but I played violin or whatever. So it's like it's benign information that kids are looking for, but but it's also really important. So why keep play a child? Piano? No. Okay. Just curious. <laughs> no. Um, right. um, but it's the little things like that. You know, when my son first connected with his biological father, the initial questions were like, um, you know, what were your favorite, were you good at math? What were your favorite subjects at school? Um, do you ride mountain bikes? You know, uh, do you have any kids? So they're benign questions that of course my son, like he wanted to know because as a young adult, he was formating his, forming his identity, right? And part of knowing who you are is knowing who and where you come from. I always look at my son's little toes and I'm like, did the donor have those toes? I always think about the the donor, the biological father's mom as a mom raising a little boy. And I have the picture of the donor as a baby. And I always put them side by side because he really looks like him, like his pouty face looks like. And I just, I would love to talk to his mother. I have so many you know, questions. So my son connected with his biological father when he was 15 and also the donor's parents, my son's grandparents. And the donor's mother was so thrilled 
to find my son at age 15. And she embraced him as a grandson immediately. Even when the donor like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what this is. What are we to each other? The mother, I am a grandmother. I don't care how you were conceived in a car, in a test tomb, in a marriage, whatever. You are my grandson. And, but one thing she told me, oh, maybe it was a couple of years later. So we had sent her, all of the videos of my son as a baby, we kind of like wanted to fill her in on those 15 years. And we sent her all of, you know, this information about my son and his childhood. And she confided in me not too long after she said, you know, I had to go through a, a grieving period. I had to grieve those 15 years that I lost. And it was really profound to me, like how that could be for the grandparent of a donor child, that she actually had to go through a grieving period for those lost 15 years. It just kind of shows you like these relationships matter. Let's leave it at that. That's amazing. That, that is, that's amazing. Wendy, thank you so much for your time. Um, you're doing such important work and we're, we're really, I personally am lucky to have you, but also um, our entire industry is. So thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much also for the work that you are doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Fruitful and Multiplying. And as always, reach out with more podcast ideas and feedback. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Jewish Fertility Foundation.